Listen as I read God's word. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talium, and he 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the, all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Verse 8, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the, to the Lord all night long. Let's pray. Lord, once again, as we open up your word, it is with the clear understanding that all of your word is inspired and that you've given it to us for our instruction and for our con correction. That every word of God proves true. And so Lord as we take a look at the things that you've revealed to us in this passage. Lord even if they are at times uh, uncomfortable or different, difficult things. We know that everything that you have revealed is true. And it is truth that you have desired to be declared and to be known and not to be hidden. And so God, I ask that you would grant us in the moments we have together this morning looking at your word, a clearer understanding of what it says, a greater sense of your might and your majesty. Lord, move us as your people with a, with a great love and devotion. Uh, bring us, God, to a clearer uh, application even on our own lives of the things that we look at from the scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So really as we take this up, this is uh, getting back into 1 Samuel. We had come down towards the end of chapter 14 really before. And chapter 14 really just ends with, with a few battles and a little bit of hard fighting before it gets into the details now of chapter 15. So as we take up chapter 15, we're going to mainly look at it under three main issues or three main subjects today. And the first one is, is who's the master? We're going to look at the master, which is God. We're going to look at a mystery 
that is w- within this, and then we're going to look at the misdeeds of Saul and the people of Israel. Those three simple ideas, but even as I say they're simple ideas, there are challenging things within them, and I just want us to begin to understand it and look at it. The first thing I want us to note here as we begin to open it up is the master. When this chapter begins, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people. Just, just the beginning of this chapter, I want to slow down just a second and look carefully at the language and terminology that's there. Because it's not accidental. It says there, uh, Samuel says, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over Israel. So when we're looking at that simple phrasing, the selection of Saul to be king over Israel was made by who? God, not even by Samuel. It wasn't Samuel's choice as the sort of the last judge and as a prophet passing it on. But he's wanting it to be known from the very beginning that my coming to you is because he sent me. My anointing you as king is because he chose you. Samuel is making it clear from the beginning of this communication to Saul that the master of the people of Israel, indeed the master of all things, is God himself. And all that I've done is what God has told me to do. And the position that you are in right now as the king is in a position where you must do what God tells you to do. Even as he's my master, he's also your master. And that's why really we see this. And it says, now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. I'm going to just put this out there. That simple phrase stated by Samuel now therefore listen to the words of the Lord oh I wish that we could just say that to everybody just everybody everywhere all over the world every place just stop and listen to the words of the Lord not of this man and of that man and of this preacher and that preacher and that storyteller and that uh, politician and that influencer and whatever. But listen to the words of the Lord. Would it be that God would more and more cause that his words would indeed be the center of what is taught and what is preached and what is proclaimed to the people? And not just ideas and feelings and opinions and things that people like and things that stir people, but all of God's word and all that it says. Now what he's getting ready to tell to Saul is a difficult message. But it begins with this precursor, listen to the words of the Lord. And I ask you this, at what point can we take any truth that God has said and stand back and say, well, I don't, I don't like that. I don't, I don't agree with that. Well, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. It, does that work? It doesn't work. I mean, it happens. Indeed, it happens all the time. And maybe occasionally it might happen, even in our own hearts and minds. Well, that makes me a little uncomfortable. Well, that's a little difficult to swallow. Okay. 
It's all right to acknowledge the difficulty, to recognize the tension. What's not all right is to reject God's word and say, well, that's his opinion. I mean, with men and you and me, we can have that go on all day long, right? Well, that's your opinion. Well, that's my opinion. Well, and everyone can share their own feelings and opinions, and neither one necessarily holds more sway. But when it comes to God and God's Word, it's never really something where we can sit back and say, well, that's just His view of things. That's just His way of seeing things. Because I have to tell you this, his view is the right view, and his way is the right way. Everything else is wrong. And every moment, and at any point where you and I think, I think God could have done better here. We're wrong. We're completely off of it. Because we are looking with such limited minds and what's coming here is this clear instruction. God is the master. Samuel, the judge, the prophet does and goes and says where God tells him to go and says what God tells him to say. Saul is given a very specific instruction and he's to take that instruction and he's not to deliberate over it with, well, how much of this do I agree with and how much of this will be acceptable to the people and will we all get on board with this? Can we all set this as, a, as an ideology that we can agree on and come around? Or is it just, this is God's word. Do it. This is God's word. Believe it. And just as cut and dry and clear as that that's what it really needs to be because God is the master and I'm going to say this without any hesitation the mastery of God the lordship of God was never limited to Israel it had an extraordinary and peculiar expression that we might see and learn from as he was Lord over that nation. But he is Lord of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. He is the maker and master of all things, visible and invisible. All powers, there is none that comes anywhere close to him. We've got to grasp that, because if we don't grasp that, then there becomes uh, uh, somewhat of a challenge as we begin to wrestle with what we see in this passage here. For example, this is what he tells him now in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go. And strike Amalek, that strike the Amalekites, strike these people and devote them to destruction. All that they have. Do not spare them. Now listen to what it says. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, donkey and camel. Now. Is there any confusion as to what the command is saying? The command is remarkably clear. There's, there's no doubt 
He didn't just say it generally. Go in there and kill everyone and everything. It didn't leave it open to sort of, well, does that mean even the infants? Does that mean even the donkeys? I think, I think it just means generally. God didn't give them a general command here that could be confused. He gave them a very precise command that left no confusion at all exactly what was supposed to be done. Now note this, if you were to take time, and I can encourage you to do so, to go back into Exodus chapter 17, you could read how the Amalekites opposed the children of Israel, how they came out as they were coming by and did battle against them and killed many of them, and that, that brutality. We can, you could read also out of Deuteronomy chapter 25, where the scripture says in verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God therefore when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around you in the land that the Lord is giving you for an inheritance you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven you shall not forget so this is no confusion. When it happened, shortly after it happened, God said, the day is coming that they will be done. They will be wiped out off the face of the earth. Now the challenge sometimes for us logically comes like this. The actual king who did that and the actual soldiers involved in that attack by the time Saul is the king, where is that guy? He's long since dead. We don't have a lot of up-to-date history of the Amalekites here to know whether or not it is or is not one of his descendants sitting on the throne. But he's no longer there. All of the soldiers are no longer there. We are hundreds of years later. Which means the people who are here are grandchildren, great-grandchildren. There's nobody even alive in that whole area that was a part of the attack. Now our human logic starts to get involved, doesn't it? Well, none of those people in that town were involved with what happened before, so it just doesn't seem right that they should be punished for something that great-grandpa did. So, maybe we should just let them go. Well, even if someone's logic begins to play out like that, and I understand why it does. We do live in a different era, and we have a different mindset than the people of Israel, and then many of the ancients did. Many of the ancients, it was a natural thing that children and children and children should bear the consequences of what their ancestors have done. That was a natural thought. The unnatural thought is that they shouldn't. Now, we've turned it all around and live in a different age. But what I'm saying is, as we look at this passage, the question isn't, does it or does it not seem fair? Does it or does it not seem right? The question is, what did God say? <laughs> yeah, but what God's saying, it just doesn't, 
to me seem right? Well, here's what you've got to recognize about that sentence that, that spoils the whole sentence. To me. It doesn't to me seem right. Well, who am I? I'm just a man. I don't have the mind of God. I don't have all authority. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who takes it away. He has all authority over all creation. Whether he reveals to us his reason or whether he doesn't reveal to us his reason, here is the reality. God has all rights at all times and in all places to do all that he wants. But what if it doesn't seem fair? Again, the problem with that sentence is that it doesn't seem fair, and the limit is doesn't seem fair to me or to us. But the fact is, when God does something, it is always fair and just, whether we understand it or not. In Job chapter 34, God's word says this in Job chapter 34, verses 12 through 17. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly. The Almighty will not pervert justice. Okay, God doesn't do wrong. He doesn't make mistakes. Everything he does is just. But everything in our mind says, well, I don't see how it can be just because they didn't. None of those people who are there had any part in the attack that took place when they came out of Egypt. I just can't accept it. It seems unjust. Well, God will not do wickedly. The Almighty will not pervert justice. It goes on in Job 34 verse 13 to say this. Who gave him charge over the earth? As you're beginning to evaluate the seeming fairness or unfairness of what God does, ask yourself this question. Who is in charge? Who has always been in charge? Who gave him authority? Did you give him authority? Did you, does he answer to you? Are you his supervisor? Are you his manager? Are you the one he's accountable to? Who gave him charge over the earth or laid on him the whole world? And then it goes on to say this in verse 14. If he should set his heart to gather to himself his spirit and breath, all flesh alike would perish and man return to the dust. If, if God wanted to, you're, you're thinking it may not be fair that God is taking the Amalekites and blotting them off the face of the earth? Do you not realize if God was to take his breath back from everybody and every living thing and all man perish and go back, God would still be just. Because who says that God owes life to anyone? See, the problem is we so often think about God as if he was just some sort of glorified human. Human rights, right? 
We, and we live in a world where there are human rights, and those human rights are valuable. It's important that we treat one another with decency and with respect and with dignity. It's right that we would not want for, for um, prisoners in places uh, to be abused and horribly mistreated beyond what would be just. But understand this, between you and I, between man and man, those standards God himself also imposed. If a man takes another life, there's an eye for an eye, there's a tooth for a tooth. God, God imposed even justice between man and man. But the confusion is that when we think that our justice and our right and wrong between us is the same as it is between us and him, and that is not there. I have not the right to take your life. <laughs> but he has the right to take mine and your life, even now belongs to him and we've got to grasp that otherwise too many people start to think uh, they they begin to act as if we live in a world in which God is somehow indebted to us maybe because you know you're coming to church or you're praying prayers or you're doing this or you're doing that and you're you're you've got enough obedience or you've got enough prayer and you've got enough this that now God has to respond with certain blessings and certain provisions and certain uh, you know desires that you may have that's crazy that's not the nature of the God of the Bible God who has given to God a gift that he should be repaid the answer to that is no one. God owes nothing to anyone such that anything that we ever receive from his hand we don't say yeah I earned that one we don't say that. We say, thank you, God, for your mercy and kindness in giving this to me. It's just very important for us to understand the difference between the rights of the creator and the rights of the creature. Men and women and children and animals, etc., don't have any rights before God. Now, he's going to tell them that they need to go in and kill everyone, wipe every single person out. Even, even the children, even the babies. Now, note this. This is a different scenario. For the children of Israel, if they were in a situation where two people got in a fight, and, and if they got in a fight and they hit a woman who was with child, and she ended up losing that child, that was treated as a murder. And they were responsible for that. So it's not that... that Life is not taken seriously. But understand this. Life between man and man is very different. Man cannot take another man's life. He has not the right to do that. Whether it is an unborn child or a born child, man does not have the right over another man's life in that sense. But God has the right over all life. Some might say, I can understand why God would say, go and kill the men and the women. But why the children? Why the babies? I mean, why? The, now, I'm thankful I didn't live in that time because as a soldier, I, I would have great difficulty uh, uh, carrying out those commands. I'm just being very honest. I'd have great difficulty going into a home and into, into the, the, a crib room and carrying out those things. It would be very, very difficult for me. 
but this is what needed to be done. Notice beyond that, someone would say, but what did the babies do? Well, you know, even now, babies die every day. Recently born, soon to be born, babies are dying all the time. And don't for a moment think, well, that's just happening. And God has no part in that. There's, there's nothing that God has no part in. God is the one who gives life. God is the one who's able to sustain life. And God is the one who removes breath from people. Now, we might ask ourselves, but why? And those why questions, we're going to ask because that's part of our nature. But we reach a limit of understanding the why. Because we could say, I mean, for one sense... I could point out the, the, the simple things that the scriptures teach us out of the book of Romans, for example. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, just to, to understand God's rights with this regard. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Scripture will go on to say uh, later in this passage that through the sin of the one man, condemnation was passed upon all men. So one man sinned, Adam did, and as a result of that, what came to all men? Condemnation and death. So when even the children are being told, you need to put these infants to death, that's actually not too confusing because what is their condition by nature in Adam condemned to death now that's hard for us to understand because we're still saying but what did they do yet I don't know what they did yet shouldn't we at least wait until they had a chance well here's the fact whenever you wait for people to have a chance here's what they do sin why because all are born dead in their trespasses and sin. That is their nature. That's why everyone does sin. But beyond that, in this context, if you even look at it, it's not only the people. It then goes on strangely to list, not only do you kill every man, woman, child, and infant, but ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Now, your first question wasn't this, but it could have been, what did the donkeys do? Uh, you know, I understand why more logically we think, what did the babies do? I, I understand that. But if we're carrying on the principle, these donkeys had nothing to do with the attack that took place many years ago. Did they? No. But what you have here is he who has all authority exercising his authority and saying you are to go in and you are to take that place and all that belongs to them and you are to blot them entirely off the face of the earth. All that they are and all that they own is to be done with. Now, he's saying it here. He had already said in Deuteronomy that that's what he was going to do. Now, we may sit back and say, but I don't know why he would do that. And that's okay if you ask that question. 
people still ask that question today. For example, uh, with regard to someone who sins for 80 years, I don't understand why would God would make them suffer in the lake of fire for all eternity when all they did was sin for 80 years and then they have to suffer for all eternity. That doesn't seem fair. I, I, don't, I don't get that. Well, I agree. You don't get that. That's all I can agree with. And, and maybe I don't get that. But we don't have to get the why. We just have to believe the what. What he says is what it's going to be. And now, the whys, someday we will understand. When we see him face to face, when we have that wisdom of God, when we understand uh, the, the sense of his sovereignty, the nature of sin and, uh, and his holiness, it will all make far greater sense to us. But I just want to sh show you this. Almost, it's possible that few of us here have ever heard a sermon out of 1 Samuel chapter 15. Because this passage where God Almighty is saying, go in there and kill them all, including the babies, people find that uncomfortable. You know, maybe even some Christians might find that embarrassing. Well, I don't want people to think of God like that. Well, it's in the Bible because God wants us to see it. He wants our understanding of Him and how He works to take into account even this challenging reality. He's not ashamed of it because He's the one who caused it to be recorded. And if we will bypass it, jump it, skip it, shun it, what's wrong with us? Are we embarrassed that our God is not good enough for people. See, here's the problem. It's not a question of whether God is good enough for people. The reality is, who is ever good enough for God? And the world doesn't get that message anymore because they're ashamed of passages like this. And they pass them by. We cannot pass them by when he's put them here. No one by themselves will ever be good enough for God. When we understand what all men deserve, we ought to be that I've been able to, you know, for 48 years to have life when I didn't deserve even a single day of it. Then it changes the way that we think. But somehow when we have this assumption that he owes us life, and he can't take it back until we cross a certain line with our deeds or misdeeds. Is that, is that reality? No. There are many really wicked people who live to really, really old age. And there are many relatively, relatively kind and thoughtful and decent people who meet an early end. Why? Take the bad guy, leave the good, world is better. That's what our hearts and minds might say. But God's way is better than ours. 
God's thoughts are better than ours in every way. And so I want to move on from this first simple thought that where he is the master, everything that he does is right, and even his declaration that they are to come in with utter destruction is well within his sovereign rights because there's nothing outside of his sovereign rights. All right? So when, whatever he does, he has a right to do it, and whatever he does is right. That's just the way it is. However, and, and, and if, if any part of me thinks it's wrong, I'm just wrong. That, that's, and, and, and I've got to be willing to live with that tension. Otherwise, I'm making myself out to be judge of God. Not a healthy place to be. The second thought I want to draw your attention to in this, as it, it really, and it flows right through this, we see not only the master, but we see the mystery. There is a mystery involved in this to a large extent. But the mystery gets even deeper in this passage. In this passage, Saul is going to disobey God. He tells him to go in there and kill everybody. And Saul does not kill everybody. They kill everybody except the king. Now, here's the this, here's this strange thing. Uh, you, he didn't seem to have any qualm or hesitation about killing all the babies. But he kept the wicked king alive. So it, it's, it's not that there's a great, any sense of decency there, but it was, it was very clear what to do, and he disobeyed it. He and the, and the children of Israel disobeyed, and as a result of this disobedience, God is angry with him, and God is determined and declares that he is going to remove the kingdom from him. But I need to show you a few things in this chapter because there is a mystery. Now, part of what lays the groundwork for this mystery, and I've already begun to do it, is this. God is not a man. Okay, He's not a creature. He's not like you and me. Though we were created in a sense in his image... And as we've fallen into sin, it's not that everything that we think is the same. Now, it's very important to note this. Um, before I even get into what I want to see here, I want to take you briefly to, and, or note this down, Numbers chapter 23, verse 11 says this. This is where... Balaam is being compelled by God to speak only that which is true. And he says this in Numbers 23 verse 19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? I mean, that is, that is the simple reality. God is not a man that he should change his mind or a son of man that he should lie. So God, now, what happens, there are passages in the scripture 
that seem like God changed his mind. So here's the confusion. Does God change his mind? Simple test. Does God change his mind? Simple answer. No, he's not a man that he should change his mind. But wait a second. He sent a man by the name of Jonah. Jonah went to the land of Nineveh. He was sent there by God to proclaim a simple message. And here was the simple message. 40 days and you're dead. It's over. You're done. That's it. And then he leaves the town. You know what he didn't say? Unless you repent, unless you seek God for forgiveness, then maybe he will forgive. There was nothing. It was, you're done. It's over. You're finished. The end. And he left. What did God use that message to do in the city of Nineveh? He used that to stir up a lot of humbled hearts, repentant cries, so that across the entirety of that town, there was tremendous change and transformation. When that change and transformation took place, what did God do? He did not bring the judgment that was declared on them to them. And Jonah was unhappy, to put it mildly, right? Because, why did this happen? I knew that you would do this. Well, did God change his mind? From our human perspective, at times it may seem God changed his mind, but God never changes his mind. I want to ask you this. With regard to the proclamation of destruction made by Jonah against Nineveh, when did God know what their response would be to that declaration of judgment? Was he watching, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Is he watching like that? No, what, when did God know what their response was? Here's the answer to all those questions. He's always known it. Because his knowledge is eternal. So you're saying before the foundation of the world, even before he said, let there be light, God already knew that when he sent Jonah and Jonah declared destruction, the people would be repentant and then he would forgive them? Yes. So if that was God's plan all along through the declaration of judgment to bring them to repentance and then to show mercy, is that actually a change of mind if that was already his plan before he started it? See, sometimes to us, it seems like a change of mind. It's never a change of mind with God because he does all things with purpose. He's not a man that he should change his mind. That's what the scriptures point out. So, it's, so we, we live with this mystery. Wait, but aren't there passages where we clearly see God changed his mind? Well, changed in what sense? Since it was a planned change of mind, is it really a change? See the complication? There's a mystery involved here. With regard to the appointment of Saul as king, it tells us this here in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and performed my commandments. God is saying, I regret 
that I made him king. The King James Version there says, it repenteth me. Now, I ask you this, does God need to repent? No. When we talk about repent, what does that mean? I have done wrong. I've done what I should not have done, and I intend not to do it again. Okay? Is God saying that he did wrong? I might ask you this. Can God do wrong? See, that's why I'm saying there's some mystery here. I regret. When we regret, when I regret something, or you regret something, usually it will carry this idea with it. If I could do it over, I would do it differently. Because I regret what I did. And so if I could go back, I would make changes so as not to have to regret it later. I would fix the misdeed. Well, God says he regrets making Saul king over Israel. Is he saying, if I had it to do over again, if I had known then what I know now, I would have done it differently. Is that what it says? Now, a lot of you, uh, you're saying, no, that, that, that can't be what it says. I mean, because when did God know that Saul was going to disobey the command here? He always knew it. So, so then how is he regretting it now when he already knew that's exactly what was going to happen in the first place? I don't get it. Down at the, if you jump and you will, to the very end of this chapter, it says this. Verse 35, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord regretted it. This is challenging language, isn't it? But this is what I think is beautiful. God is the one who gave us this language. He's not afraid of this language. He knows that it can lead to some misunderstandings. And so to give us a corrective understanding, he put right in the middle of these two occasions where it says God repented or God regretted. He put right in the middle of these verse 29. So turn with me and you must see this with your own eyes. 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 29. And here's what God's word says. Also, the glory of Israel. Most of your Bibles there will have the word glory of Israel in capital G and I. Glory of Israel. That phrase glory of Israel is a, is a reference to or a name of God. Okay, The glory of Israel. The God of Israel. Will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. So wait a second. Here in this one chapter, I've got two verses that says he regretted. And then I've got one verse that twice says he don't regret. So where does that leave me? It leaves me with a mystery, doesn't it? 
But it leaves me this. It's very important to see again the language there where it says this. uh, He is not a man that he should have regret. Okay? So regret is given to us as a word or a term that will come closest to giving us some sense of God's grief sorrow disturbance over the sin of Saul it's the closest we can get to understand that this almighty God who is above all and over all that when Saul sins it does specifically directly disturb and upset God himself so it it takes And any idea to push God out into deep outer space transcendence. And it brings him back. Intimately involved with his creation. Intimately interacting with his people. Present and eminent. Where where it's not just, well, he didn't do what I said, but I mean that doesn't affect me because in the end I'm going to win. No, the, the fact that God specifically grieves over the sins of people. That there is some measure of disturbance. That the closest sense of it that we can get is the sense that we experience when we regret something. Now, he's not a man that he would regret. He always knew this was coming. It was well done. And given the chance to do it again, he would do it exactly the same way. Because he hasn't learned something now, he didn't know then, because God doesn't learn stuff. He's always known all things. Is that a mystery? Yes, it is. But see, this is the beauty of this passage. Twice it says he regretted, and then twice in one verse it says, but know this, though he regretted, he doesn't ever regret. Huh? Ooh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And th- th- does that leave us a little bit flabbergasted a little bit overwhelmed a little bit maybe he's too wonderful for me that I cannot comprehend him in total yeah that's where you need to be (laughs) that's the only place that we can be now also going to move on more quickly so we've seen the master and we've seen the mystery and hopefully that helps a lot but now I want to briefly focus on the misdeeds Okay, the first misdeed is simply this. He said, go in, kill them all, devote everything to destruction. There's no taking of booty. There's no taking of anything. Everything there is to be destroyed and wiped out. He goes in there, and what does he do? Well, the scriptures are pretty clear. Though there were clear commands, look what it says in, say, verses 8 and 9. And he, that Saul, took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted all the other people to destruction. Verse 9 says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fattened calves, the lambs, all that was good, they would not utterly devote to destruction. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they went through and the, the stuff that they thought, this is junk, they would destroy it. The stuff they thought, doesn't make any sense to destroy this. Why why would God want us to destroy this? We can make good use of it. We can enjoy this. So even though God said it, 
I mean, we got a better plan. We got a better way. And it says Saul and the people did this. Their actual actions were not what God had said. They somehow felt like instead of a life that would be committed to listening to God's word and carrying out his commands, they thought, well, I mean, we'll, we'll give a listen. But in the day-to-day, it kind of comes down to a judgment call, kind of what I think in the moment. Not good. Not healthy. Listen to God. Listen to his word. Do what he says. Now, so they come down, and I, wa- and, and I want to see you, you to see how these sins begin to mount up within, within Saul. Here, here he's a man who, who comes in, and look what it says. I'm going to go a little quickly through this, verse 12. Halfway through verse 12, it says, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Okay. So he goes in, he has this battle, and when the battle is done and they come out from there, what does he do? He sets up a monument to himself. Now, every victory in battle, from whose hand does it come? God's. But when this victory has taken place, who is the monument built in? The name of Saul. He's seeing himself as the one who's accomplishing these great things. He doesn't want it. It's a monument. means it's to, to, to serve there as a memorial. Let people for centuries to come lay their eyes upon this and know how great I am and what I have done. Which is tragic because this monument really serves as a trophy of his disobedience because it's not what he did was not great he thinks because they had a victory it was great how it seems in the eyes of man and because something is successful and and you walk away with abundance and provision does not mean God is pleased or he has blessed you They're walking away with all of this abundance that they've taken out of this town, but they are living in absolute disobedience. They seem to be blessed of God, but they stand in the displeasure of God. What a mystery. Yeah, mystery we still live in. We still live in a world where people think, well, if there's lots of numbers, if there's lots of things going, if there's lots of success, then God is blessing that. The test is not whether they seem blessed. The test is this. Are they unshakably, unswervingly, faithfully committed to God's word? Not twisting it and adjusting it. Not hiding it and misrepresenting it. But faithfully setting forth the word of God. That's the question. Not the seeming incidental outside things. Men will build monuments and and magnificent structures to themselves. But that does not mean anything. He set this up. Samuel comes and meets him in verse 13. And this is, it's interesting how he gives the introduction and the greeting to Samuel here. Blessed be you, in verse 13, Saul, Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So his first step, his, his, his first greeting is, I did everything God wanted. Now, we know he didn't. 
But his very opening statement, not how have you been, how was your journey, how, I've done everything right. You know, makes you wonder whether or not he's feeling some sense of conviction or he knows he wants to cut off at the pass any word of judgment that might come from him. Before you even get started, I did everything right. The scary part might be even this. He believes it. I mean, that's the scary part about many of these, these, these large and successful groups that compromise the word of God, his sovereign grace. Hey, I'm not compromising. I'm doing everything right. We're doing everything for God. We're doing everything his way. But they're not. And they don't see it. They're actually deceived. And, and what, what, look how deceived this poor fellow is. He says, um, I have performed all of the commandment of the Lord. And then Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? I mean, I'm hearing the sheep. How can you say you did it all? Part of it was kill all the sheep. And I'm hearing all of these sheep bleeding, and I'm bleating, and I'm hearing all of these oxen lowing. I mean, all around you is this symphony, an ode to sin. And here you are, uh, I'm good. I did it all right. Oh. And so he gives him, he really confronts him in that way. And then look at what Saul's answer is, verse 15. They have brought them from Amalek for the people spared. It, oh, oh yeah, the problem is it, it's not me. It's them. Now, of course, much to his difficulty and inescapability, though he can deceive himself, he can't deceive God, and because of God's word, he can't deceive us, because verse 9 said what? Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. Saul was as much a part of this as the people were. But he's going to cast that blame. Well, it's not that. It's, it's uh, the people did it. And here's what's even more beautiful about this. Listen, the people did it. They spared the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. We, you know, all of our disobedience is really due to our devotion. That's what, that's what it comes, I mean, yeah, we didn't do what God wants. We're not really doing it God's way. We're not really honoring him as he's called us to honor him, but we're going to honor him even more in our own way. And that's better. Really? Is that going to work? It's, it's, it's not even close. And so what's, what's scary in this is here is Saul and here's all of these people and all of them may even be deceiving themselves. We're about God's business. We're doing what we do for him. Not realizing when you set aside the cause of God and truth, when you disregard clear elements of his revealed word, it's not pleasing to him. 
if they were to take all of these animals right now and sacrifice every single one of them to the Lord, would any of that mean anything? No. That's not, that's not what I want. But, it, but it's a big festival. Everyone's enjoying it. They keep saying your name over and over again. I mean, anybody who looks in is going to see that this is something really spiritual going on here. Anybody who looks in is going to see God is present with these people. And, 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 and the reality is this. No. They're using his name. They're invoking his patterns of sacrifice. But they are not committed to his word so it's just a bunch of sounds goes on really and he says the, and he explains it to him Samuel says to him stop and I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night and he's going to go down really jump down if you would to verse 22 has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord to obey the voice of the Lord to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. Goes on down and says, this rebellion and presumption is just like divination and idolatry. Basically, sins that meet capital punishment, sins that meet with death, that's what you've done. You have done, supposedly, for the purposes of worship, things that deserve death. And then he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This passage began, this is the command of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. There cannot be any rejection of the word of the Lord. Anyone who thinks they can reject, but anything of the word of the Lord may find themselves rejected. Now, Ignorance regarding certain things from the word of the Lord is not the same thing as rejection. But when the truth of God's word is set before people and they say, I will have none of that. Well, that's what God has said. I don't care. I don't want that. I don't want my God to be like that. I don't want a God who would command the babies to be killed. I will not accept that verse. I'm removing that chapter from my Bible. Can you do that? You cannot do that. And so what generally happens is, and is so common in, in, in churches today, is they'll jump from one passage to another passage. One book to another book. And you're never going all the way through because if you go all the way through certain sections, you meet with uncomfortable stuff. So let's just keep jumping from topic to topic, from theme to theme, from section to section, so I get to tell the people what I want to tell them or what I think they need. Instead of telling them who is God. And all that he says we need to know. And we need to see. So back in this passage up, up further. He said to him in verse 17. Samuel said to him. Though you are little in your own eyes. Are you not the heads of the tribe of Israel? And the Lord has anointed you. And the Lord sent you. Verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? He said though you are little. That's a, that goes back to the days when he was first anointed. And first ate with him. And he said who am I? Uh, I, I, I'm from the small tribe. I'm, I'm, I'm insignificant. Who am I that you would anoint me king over them? But now of course when he says. Though you are little in your own eyes. It's almost humorous. Because he's so little in his own eyes, he just finished building his own monument. 
though he was once little in his own eyes and ought to still be little in his own eyes. He's taking his eyes off of that. And, and, and here's what, what is so dangerous. Whether the people listened to Saul or not, it seems like he started the, the holding back from obedience by not killing the king. Now, he's going to say that I couldn't do anything about it because the people all wanted to do it. But if you went a couple chapters back, remember he said, until we finish the fight this day, no one can even have any food. And nobody touched food, even to where they were all fainting. So when he's pretending he didn't have the power to make a decree and tell people to obey, that is just an absolute excuse. The people were willing to follow him, and they followed his bad example. So the last, uh, the last thing that I want you to see here is, is really look at verse uh, 24 with me. So Saul said, no, I got to go back up to verse 20. Uh, I'm running out of time, but I want to lay this out to you. He initially agreed by saying, uh, I've obeyed all that the Lord commanded. After he's first confronted, his response in verse 20 was, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission that he sent me, and I've brought Agag the king, and I've devoted the Malachi. So what he's done, I have obeyed it. And then he's completely ignored the actual commands. I've obeyed it for the most part. I mean, good enough, right? Finally, once he's ultimately confronted down in verse 24, he says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Okay, okay, I've sinned. I admit it. But we can all agree it's not my fault. It's their fault. Right? So, so we're good. Yeah, I've sinned. Yeah, I confess. Yeah, terrible me. Uh, now, let's move on. Let's just move on from this. Wait a second. That's a weak confession. That, that, that's a weak repentance. And you can see also, he says, Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Please pardon my sin. Who? Samuel? Is Samuel the one who pardons sin? No, and return with me so we can bow before the Lord. In other words, we've got a ceremony to put on right now so that everybody knows I'm still good. So I sinned, I did wrong, I made a mistake, it's their fault, but anyways, come with me and let's just go ahead and go through the ceremony and make everything right. He says, no, you've rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king. You're done. You're out. Verse 30, he then says, Okay, I have sinned. Second admission, this time not casting blame, but stating his priority. Okay, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders and the people. All right, I'm not going to blame shift anymore, but let's get down to the most important thing. I need to be honored. You know, I, I need to still maintain my position of appreciation and respect before men. All right. Okay, God, I did wrong. Whatever. Now, Look at me. Take care of me. Listen to me. Think about me. That's all. He's just caught up in this, in, in this idea and, and not really worried about it. So Samuel turned back and he went with him and he bowed before the Lord. What's amazing is Samuel went ahead and did that. 
Now, he had different motives involved in that because there would be a judgment that's going to be pronounced here. Uh, they bring the king out. And as the king is coming out in the presence of Samuel and Saul, Samuel gets up and hacks him to pieces before the Lord, which is one of the stranger phrases that you're going to come across in your life. Hacks him to pieces before the Lord. Um, which is, that was the fulfillment of God's command. It was an act of service. It was an act of obedience. He was fulfilling all what God had required. And so he did that. You know, it seems brutal and it seems bloody. And I'm so glad again I had no part in that. And would have had difficulty had I did. But here he was and he hacked him to pieces before the Lord. End of verse 34. And then he, then he went away. And this was the declaration of the utter end of it all. Three things that we've seen today in quick summary. We saw, first of all, the master. God is the master. He alone has all rights over everything. We saw the mystery that even when the scriptures say things that we don't know the why, it doesn't, it's okay if we don't know the why. We've seen the mystery that it says certain things about God that make us seem at times, it seems like he changed his mind. It seems like he regretted. But even when those languages are used, it doesn't mean the same thing that it means when it speaks of a man. It's simply to convey what's called anthropopathically, to convey the emotional element where we can have some sense of God's displeasure. And then we've seen the misdeeds. And the misdeeds of, of he and the people there was ultimately what's amazing is there was not an utter disregard of all of God's word. Actually, some might say 99% obedience right well i mean we did most of what god said now the only reason we didn't do all of it is because there were certain things we disagreed with certain things we think could be done better certain things we think would make the people happier there are just certain adjustments we had to make to satisfy us but other than that other than the adjustments we made for our own desires and pleasures we did what god wanted Brothers and sisters, is that acceptable? That's misdeeds. And in the, in the language of this passage, those are the misdeeds deserving of death. Those are the misdeeds that make the kingdom be torn away. But come on, he only left one person alive. I mean, that is, I mean, if there's more than 100 people in that, among the Amalekites, then it's more than 99% obedience, Right? Is that acceptable? Is that right? And I would just encourage us to be, be those people that by grace understand, look, he's the master, regardless of whatever mysteries we may face and things that we cannot understand, when he's given us his clear word, his clear commands that say, I am like this, I do like this, I desire this, our response is, yes, you are like that. Yes, you are glorious and you do like that. Yes, you are God and we will do all that you tell us to do. Let's pray. Lord, as we just considered the word for a, a moment, we are struck by 
the great mystery that is involved in that, but we thank you that you, you reveal those mysteries to us which keep our hearts humble, but you also reveal your word clearly to us. And we know that much like Saul, we have many times not obeyed your word, sometimes more directly disobeyed even than they did in this occasion. But Lord, we thank you that Christ was the one who did come, who perfectly obeyed all the will of the Father and then gave himself up for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, as now those people who are by faith united with Christ, we just pray that you would cause us to no longer be those people committed to those misdeeds. Lord, let us not look as the world looks at what seems like successes and abundance and victory as somehow God's provision, when in this case they served as evidence of God's judgment. Lord, help us not to be those who, who would put a premium on on some things and minimize others that would make us uh, uncomfortable. God, we just pray that we would take your word, all of it, that we would not be ashamed of it, that we would not shrink back from any of it, that we would boldly declare it, that we would humbly believe it, and that by grace we would walk in step with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.